0: Hi. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. Thanks for chiming back. I love to hear the good mornings back. We are awake. Well, um, this is my husband Jacob. I'm Christina Hamilton. You might already know us, if not have heard our names, because you are our church family. You pray for us, you send us out um, as we serve in the mission field in Monterey, Mexico. We are serving with back to back ministries. We serve orphaned and vulnerable children and their families. Um, and we're We're all on the same mission with you, just in another part of the world, reconciling people to Jesus and reconciling children to families. And so um, we're just here to introduce ourselves this morning. And if you would like to hear any more about us, about what we do, um, beautiful Lori Dunn has organized a luncheon right after the last service. Is that right? in the fellowship hall. Okay, I'm getting nods, those are the true details. Um, so luncheon means food, and we will be there. And We would love to just share with you more about ourselves and about just the work that God has called us to um, in Mexico.
1: And I have the privilege of reading scripture, so may the Lord bless all those that hear. And this is from Mark 12, verse 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but but, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, church family, if
2: you would join me in praying for Jacob and Christina as we pray for our time in the word this morning. Uh, God, we just thank you so much for the Hamiltons. We thank you that they love you. They know that you love them. And Lord, we thank you that that love overflows uh, wherever they are. And God, we thank you that you specifically have drawn their hearts to Monterey and God, for the work that they're doing there. We thank you, Lord, that you provide for them, that you protect them, that you guide them. And God, we just pray for that to continue, Lord. We pray that they would continue to look to you, that their identity would not be in how much they accomplish, but in what you accomplished for them on the cross. And God, because they know who they are in you, God, that you would just, just allow them to help others to see the potential of their identity in Christ. God, we thank you for the privilege of sharing uh, in their work. And God, I pray that you would continue to give us the opportunities to only help them, but to help others who seek to spread your glory across the world. God, we realize that that starts with us right here, right now. And so as we look at what your word says this morning, Lord, I pray that our hearts would truly be open, that your spirit would be at work in us, and you would be magnified and glorified from our time together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thank you guys. We love y'all very much. Oh, okay, we should have choreographed that. All right, well, if you're new here today, let me just say to you how grateful we are to have you with us as our guest, or if you're watching online for the first time this morning, uh, we're grateful to have you, and I would encourage you uh, to text the word CONNECT uh, to the number that's on the screen, and one of our team members from our CONNECT team will follow up with you this week. They'd be happy to answer any questions uh, that you might have. You can also stop by one of the welcome areas if you're with us on campus on your way out this morning, and the team there would be happy to see you. Let me also give a shout-out to our students who went on our student retreat this weekend. Uh, you guys are representing. All right. Well, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin famously said that nothing is certain in life but death and taxes. His point was that we cannot avoid the inevitable. Since we know that it is inevitable, people think about death often. But we think about taxes a lot more than we think about death. So it's not hard for us to understand why people would want to know Jesus' opinion on taxes. Taxes were a contentious issue in the days of Jesus, just like they often are for us. You see, you have a government, and if you don't necessarily believe in the direction of that government or the methods of that government, and then they're making you pay for that direction and making you pay for those, uh, those methods, then it can frustrate you. Ultimately, taxes frustrate us when they infringe upon our freedom. And taxes can be a complicated way, for a thing for us to think about when it's Caesar who is ruling, when it's someone who doesn't share the same ideologies that we share. And I just want to be clear that we are more like people living under Roman rule than we are like the nation of Israel when we think about America. And so today what I want to give us is five ways we should view living in the land of Caesar. But we need to walk through the passage first to understand how I got there so that you see I say these things not by my authority but by the authority of Jesus, so according to verse 13, which Jacob just read, they they send some of the Pharisees and Herodians. They are the scribes and the chief priests. They're representatives of the Jewish council. The Pharisees are the religious group who was very much focused on the enforcement of the written and oral law. And focused more often on the oral law, which was in addition to the Bible. A part of the reason for their obsession is that they wanted to preserve their faith, their culture, and their traditions in a time of Roman rule and many outside influences on the people of Israel. And they desired to once again have political independence for their nation. The Herodians are there with them, and they also want political independence for Israel, but they did not desire a Davidic king, someone from the line of David, they were loyal to Herod, and they wanted him to have the throne. I think it's safe to say that both of these groups had a focus on a nationalistic political view, and that that view had become the filter through which they understood God's word. Mark says that they were sent to trap Jesus in his talk. The word trap is the same word we would use for trapping an animal. They're trying to get or catch Jesus. They're trying to put an end to his ministry. Luke says in Luke chapter 20 verse 19 that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people. Remember, the parable we're talking about here is the parable of the wicked tenants who reject the landowner's servants, reject the landowner's son, because they want to keep the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. These, this crowd, is like them, and they want to get rid of Jesus, the son of God, but they knew they had to be careful in doing so. So Luke tells us in verse 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they ask him a question that can trap Jesus and put an end to his ministry. Verse 14 says, they say, "'Teacher, we know that you are true "'and do not care about anyone's opinion, "'for you are not swayed by appearances.'" but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now notice my tone, and we'll revisit this in just a few minutes. But let's first give attention to the question that they are asking. The question they are asking is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? Now, a little context is needed here. Remember, the nation of Israel rises to power under David as king. And then Solomon kind of moves that to the 10th degree. And they believe that the nation of Israel, the Davidic kingdom, will always exist and always be in power. But that is short lived. They go into captivity, eventually into Babylonian captivity, where the Babylonians actually destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Now after some time, Alexander the Great, uh, he comes into power and he conquers a lot of the known world at this time. And during this time period, there's a very uh, limited amount of uh, really, you know, force being applied to some of uh, the places that Greece had power over, just because it was so far stretching. The temple had been rebuilt, and there was some power in Israel at this time, and so the Maccabean revolt happens, and the Hasmonean dynasty comes to being, and so even though they're not independent, they function as independent, but Rome eventually comes to power. The Roman Empire captures Jerusalem, and the Roman Empire places a client king, Herod the Great, over Israel. So they function independently in some ways, but they are most certainly under the more organized, more, uh, you know, empirical Roman forces. But yet they desire once again in Israel to have political independence. And they do not like having to pay taxes to the Roman government. The Greek word translated taxes here is the word kinsos, and it's a translation of the Latin word tax census. Judea was subject to the pole tax, used to take care of military and to build infrastructure throughout the Roman Empire. Rome had levied This tax on Judea in A.D. 6. And as a result, it made clear to the Jews who were part of the Roman Empire by subjugation that they were subservient to the Romans. Because every time they had to pay their tax, it revealed the fact of their subjection. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, there was actually a revolt led by Judas of Galilee after A.D. 6 when this tax is imposed. Gamaliel references this in Acts chapter five and his address. Some have estimated that if you were a Jewish citizen living at the time of Jesus, 49% of your income went to taxes. 25 to 32% of that went to the Romans on top of the Jewish taxes and on top of the corruption that existed in the collection of taxes. So the people asking this question know this. If Jesus says no, then there would be legitimacy for Rome to try him as a political rebel for saying you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. And if he says yes, so there's gonna be a whole bunch of people who are upset because they think the degree of the subjection to Rome is a moral evil and they don't wanna pay these taxes. Verse 15 tells us Jesus knows why they're asking this. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. The Greek word for hypocrisy comes from the word hypocrite, uh, which means an actor. Jesus knew they were playing a part. They were flattering him. The Old Testament warns about flattery. Flattery was historically despised by the Jewish people. Just like we, dis- we despise flattery when we hear politicians, you know, blowing smoke, or when somebody at work is a schmoozer. And unless you have an ego problem, you can usually see right through flattery. And Jesus perceives their motivation correctly. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 18, that Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Malice means wickedness. He was aware of their wickedness, and he asked them, why are you putting me to the test? Now again, under Roman occupation, the Jews were divided about whether it was ethical, whether it was moral to pay taxes to Caesar. And to trap Jesus, they asked him to solve the dilemma. If Jesus said yes, it would upset many Orthodox Jews. Exodus chapter 20, the second commandment, tells us not to make graven images and there were these graven images on these coins. And you know Rome was certainly setting up a lot of idols and Deuteronomy 17 says, you shall not put a foreign king over you. And so they had concluded, because of those two things, that it was wrong to pay taxes. And so if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, they would be upset. But if he says no, then that's rebellion against Caesar. So Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look over it. A denarius was a day's wages for a common Roman soldier. Now, the crowd wasn't supposed to have, these good faithful Jews weren't supposed to have um, denarius because you couldn't use you know foreign coins in the temple or um, you weren't really supposed to have it. And so they were like, uh, we don't have it. And then the one guy who's honest is like, here you go. And they're like, yeah, we all know Dan carries denarii. He loves money. And so verse 16 says, they brought one and they said to him, and Jesus said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, It's Caesar's. We have a picture of what this coin looked like. Assuming this was a Tiberian denarius, Tiberius Claudius Caesar's image would be on one side, and on the reverse side, it had Livia, the wife of Augustus on it, proclaiming the Pax Romana. And so they answer correctly. when He says, who is this on this coin? And they say, Caesar. It's money that is about him. It idolizes him. It exalts him. His country is who made this going to be. So Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, verse 17, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Render, which means pay what is due. What he says, if it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. and If it belongs to God, give it to God. And we'll get to that at length, but quickly notice they marvel at him when he answers this a word used often to describe the reaction to Jesus's teaching and power. Luke summarizes this exchange just a little bit more clearly, in my opinion, when he says in Luke chapter 20, verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. They had said, Jesus, you do not care about anyone's opinion. And they said this kind of trying to tell Jesus what they thought Jesus wanted to hear. But this is true. Jesus is not swayed about by other people's opinions. Jesus cares about the Word because He is the Word, and Jesus cares about the will of God because He and the Father's will are one. And that's who we should be. And so Jesus tells them render to what, what is due to Caesar, to Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. His exhortation here is give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. That's the point. You could have just read that and got that yourself. Give to God what belongs to God. On that coin that I asked for, you will find the image of Tiberius. He's the one who mended these coins. He's the one who put them into circulation. He has a justifiable right to the tax that accrues for benefiting from his infrastructure. But on your lives there is another image stamped more clearly than the image of Tiberius on the denarius. And that's the image of the God who made you. So therefore, your commitment to the responsibilities that are represented in Caesar's tax are within the context of your ultimate responsibility to the living God who made you in his image you and everything you touch should be in submission to God. Now, Alistair Begg, who's been very helpful for me in articulating some of these portions of Scripture here in Mark, says this, whatever my objectives, whatever my concerns, whatever my political designs, desires, whatever my economic theories, they have to be a distant second to my submission to the kingship Of Christ what I must first view when I think about any decision I make and any group I'm in is that I am primarily a citizen of the kingdom of God and that kingship is ruling over my life and my heart and what I would say to you is that it is a mistake to put God into a category it is a mistake to put God into a category and a lot of us do put him into a category. This, this parable is about, or this, excuse me, this teaching is about money. And a lot of people treat God like a tax. They pay their dues to the church. They pay their tax to the church and they believe as long as they can give that 10% to God, then they can do whatever they want to do with the rest of the 90%. And, and it's interesting that a lot of people think even giving 10% infringes upon them. And, and I would just say this, God is the reason I'm breathing. God is the reason I can take a step. God is the reason I have anything that I have. And the fact that God would only say, hey, give 10% so that you're prioritizing me and where you are where you should be, I'm like, that's it? Because if God said, hey, give me 100% and live off the land, he deserves that. And I would just say, if, if God says to give something, if me, that's one thing, but if God says to give something and you buck against him, I question that he is the Lord of your life. And I question that you understand the abundant grace that we have in Christ Jesus. We live in the most, we have the most buying power of any group of people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. And the fact that we are less inclined as believers to give that percentage of our income is just astounding to me. You see, to me, that's the basement understanding what Christ has done for me. But what we must understand is that when we give that percentage that we're led to give, that's not the only portion that belongs to God. It all belongs to God, and God cares about what I do with 100% of my money. But that's not the only way people treat God like he's a do or something to acknowledge. Some people think if they go to church for an hour then they're free to do what they want with the rest of their time, or I'm your pastor, so an hour and a half. Um, If they go to church for an hour and a half, then they can do what they want for the rest of their life, not giving any regards to God. Some people, when it comes to events, sports, whatever it might be, hey, we gotta pray before the match, and then we can act like the worst person in the world out on the field. But we prayed the Lord's Prayer that we don't understand before the match, before the game, whatever it might be. Some people think, hey, you know, I'm gonna get married, a pastor's gonna do our wedding, we're gonna get married in a church, we're gonna talk about God, and then I'm just gonna be the husband I wanna be and the wife I wanna be. And so we put God in this small category of our life, often separating faith from the rest of the areas of our life, but the Christian view is this, it all belongs to God. And whatever is in my hands, I am a steward of, and I need to ask God, what does he want of this? Remember the parable from last week, that God has planted the vineyard and he wants us to bring forth fruit for him. God also uses the story of a steward. Jesus teaches the idea of us being a steward for the master and being entrusted with the things of the master to do what he wills for us. So with that in mind, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now the objection here for them would be, I don't like this government and many things they do. I would never choose to be in subjection to these political rulers. Similar to how we often feel. But I want you to notice the hypocrisy of the question. It's ironic that Jesus did not possess the coin that they asked about. But even though one only brought it forth, they did. The Pharisees and the Herodians were wealthy. They used this currency to be wealthy people in this culture. And so they were implicit in the recognition of the authority of Caesar. They used the resources of Caesar, and they were therefore hypocrites, asking, do we have to pay taxes, even though we benefit from the things of Caesar? And if this is the case, there is a responsibility on our part. About 50 years ago, Jay Vernon McGee wrote this we do have a responsibility to our government. When I see my income tax, sometimes I think I have too much responsibility. It pinches me when I see the way some of our senators are living and when I see the corruption that is taking place in all areas of government today. I must confess that then I resent paying the income tax, but that does not mean that I ought not to pay some. We have definite responsibility to government. James Brooks, a biblical scholar, says, this famous statement by Jesus does not provide a full account of the Christian's obligation to the state It does justify the medieval concept of two empires, the ecclesiastical and the secular, each supreme in its own sphere. It does not justify the modern dichotomy between politics and religion. It simply affirms that obedience to a secular power does not necessarily conflict with obligation to God. What this text is saying is, you can't say I'm a Christian, so I don't have to pay taxes to the government that I live under. In America, our coins have graven images on them. They idolize men who we believe have been significant in our nation's history. There's idolatry, symbols of idolatry on our symbols, on our currency, and in our capital. Yes, it says in God we trust, but that can be interpreted pretty arbitrarily because of all the other imagery that is on this currency. A follower of God should never want currency to have that or represent that. But God does in his sovereignty allow that, not just in this nation, but in nations across history and across the globe. So the application to those who find themselves in a government run by Caesar is, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So I want to now share five ways that God's people should view living in the land of Caesar. I got to go quick because the head can only absorb what the bottom can endure. Number one, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Jesus says to Pilate during his trial, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus says, if I were just concerned with the earthly kingdom, this is not how things would play out. But what I am concerned with is a kingdom that is bigger than this earthly kingdom that you are focused on. For a Christian, we need to understand that the priority of God is not earthly kingdoms. The priority of God is the heavenly kingdom. And earthly kingdoms are used by God in his sovereignty to accomplish the purpose of the heavenly kingdom. So the Bible explicitly states that the Christian should have this perspective. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 through 20, Paul articulates this clearly. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, God making his appeal appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Christian is an ambassador for the kingdom of God. We, as an ambassador, are people who are living in a geographical, physical location that is not our primary identity. An ambassador goes somewhere and is not guided primarily while he might respect the rules of that land, is not guided primarily by the rules of that land, and does not operate according, and is ultimately not accountable to the rules of that land, but he is accountable to and primarily concerned with the nation in which he represents. We as Christians on this earth are citizens of the kingdom of God. That is where our first allegiance lies. Earthly politics must be view- viewed underneath God, subjection to him. However, I would say that it is true that professing Christians often are characterized more by their passion for their views on the direction of their nation's politics than carrying out the will of God as it is expressed in Scripture for their lives. We should love the people of our country and therefore desire, vote for, work towards what is best. But this is out of honor for God and his superiority and not a belief that the geographical location we were born is superior to other places. God's promise is to build his church and his kingdom, not an earthly nation. God's promise is to build his kingdom and a church, not a particular expression of it or denomination. Jesus's kingdom will last. And so we should rightly view all the domains we are in on this earth in that light. I have said this before. When I say the Pledge of the Allegiance, I'm happy to say that as long as we say the words of under God, because my first allegiance is not to an earthly flag, but to a king and a kingdom. And our lives should be lived with our primary allegiance being to the kingdom of God. The second way that we should view ourselves living in the land of Caesar is this we should live for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Second Corinthians 5 is not just an ideology or a worldview. It's how we live. In 1 Timothy chapter two, verse one through four, Paul says this, he instructs the church, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The scripture says we should be praying for the nations to be run in a way that allows the mission of God to be accomplished and to flourish and not be distractions for that. And so if we're praying for this and this is our view, then we're living for this. This is the fleshing out of the gospel message in our life. It's what happens when we believe in the kingdom of God. I'm going to use quickly the three circles uh, method to explain what the gospel is and then connect that with how we're living our lives. See, here's here's the message of the gospel. Here's the message of what it means to be a Christian. God's design is that we would walk with him, that we would know him, that we would experience the goodness of his will. That was the image of the garden, Adam, Eve, in the beginning of creation. But we sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so we all have chosen to walk away from God's design for our life. And that leads us to brokenness. We see this play out in our society, in our world, but also it plays out in our lives. This is why we have nations that are unjust. This is why we have corruption and power. This is why we have abuse. This is why we have loneliness. This is why we have broken marriages, broken families, because we sin. And so as a Christian, we realize there's brokenness in our lives and there's brokenness in our world. And we know that the answer then can only be God himself, that's the gospel that's the good news of Jesus Christ that God has gi- has given us an opportunity to be reconciled to God and so the Bible calls us to repent the Greek word there is Mentineo which means change our mind and purpose and believe that means to trust in the gospel that God loves us and He sent his Son for us that we might have eternal life in him and then as a Christian, If we continue to live after we accept the gospel and believe in the gospel, the rest of our life is the recovery and pursuit of God's design in our individual lives and wherever God may place us. This is how we live as Christians. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as one person, we are not able to bring about the recovery of God's design and restoration in all areas of our life. But when the church empowered goes out we're able to accomplish this in great ways because God sends disciples of his kingdom into domains of society where some of us are involved in social work, where we might be foster parents, or we might adopt, or maybe we are caseworkers, or we're involved in caring for senior adults and issues related to them. Some of us are teachers and work in the school system and are administrators and our kids are in schools and so we're able to see thy kingdom come, thy will be done in that way. Some of us are in business and we're able to place value on people and conduct ourselves in a way that accords with godliness. Some of us will be in politics and we'll try to be change agents for some of these things in our world. Some of us are attorneys and we're involved in laws and the legal system to seek these things. Some of us are in in areas of psychology and mental health. And what we're all trying to do is we're trying to bring restoration. We should all live for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And with that in mind... Jesus tells us to obey the laws of the government under subjection of God. The third way that we should view ourselves in the land of Caesar as people of God is to obey the government unless told to explicitly go against the will of God. Obey the government unless told explicitly to go against the will of God. Again, we're primarily under the king and the king tells us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. A a, a very clear passage that deals with this, probably the most popular one is Romans chapter 13, and I'll read verse one through 10. Romans 1 through 10 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. But this is telling us, unless the government is explicitly telling you to go against the will of God, is you're in subjection to them, and you obey what they say. John Piper puts it this way, we ought to submit to the law for love's sake. We ought to think of ourselves as people who are living in a foreign land that is not in a nation, that is guided by the principles that we know to be true to last forever forever. Now, people often say, well, you know, I understand that, but we don't have a godly president, and and again, that happens all kinds of ways. Romans 13 was written under Roman rule. So don't use that and twist that to say, well, I don't have to obey the government. And, and, And what I said was not unless you disagree with the overall direction. I said, unless you're told explicitly to go against the will of God. Obey the government unless explicitly told to go against the will of God. Number four, fourth way we should view ourselves as living in the land of Caesar is this. God has asked us to obey God before government, but he has not promised exemption from the earthly consequences of that action. God has asked us to obey God before government, but he has not promised exemption from the earthly consequences of that action. So again, I said, unless told explicitly to go against the will of God. And it might be possible that you find yourself, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, being told to go explicitly against the will of God. And people often, when they think about this mentality, they think about the disciples. And something I heard referenced often is, first, is Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. It says, when Peter and John are told to stop preaching the gospel, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, I'll first say this. They're trying to preach the gospel, not have more money to go on another vacation. So before we start identifying with Peter and John here, let's just ask ourselves, are we even trying to spread the gospel? And if we're not, maybe we should stop that. But this is inspiring Right. If I'm living for what's right, then I'm going to live for what's right no matter what. But notice, notice something. They say, what you do with us is between you and God, and what we do is between us and God. So they realize they're at the mercy of these rulers here. And in the immediate context, they let them go, and they preached the gospel, and the church grew, but eventually Peter was killed, and eventually John was exiled. Because of where we live, we have had an, as I would say, unequivocal in the history of the world amount of freedom to be people who express our faith, and it often leads to our earthly good. But if we think that obeying Christ always leads to our earthly good, then we read the Bible from a very ignorant, narrow lens. Historically, this has not been true for God's people. And we as Americans do not know how to suffer for persecution's sake. There are often, today and historically, consequences from obeying God. Now, I'm not trying to get into whether or not where I stand on this issue, but I wanna use an example. From this church and outside this church, whenever the vaccine mandate began to be you know, enforced on our military, people said to me they felt convicted to not get that vaccine. I respect that. That's between them and the Lord. It's a matter of conscience. But I said to all of them, you might get fired. And God has not promised you that you will keep your job. And so if you're obeying God, you need to understand that God does not always promise good earthly results from, his obe- from your obedience. I realize as a preacher of the Bible that we are headed faster and faster to the reality of it being illegal for me to tell publicly what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. And so we as a church, in churches across our globe there could be consequences for preaching the bible god still calls us to teach the word but he doesn't promises there won't be persecution there won't be persecution for it well, with the privileges we've had in america we always think god gives us health wealth and freedom but that is insulting to our brothers and sisters who've been beheaded out of obedience for christ The call is obedience to God regardless of political gain or earthly prosperity. God has asked us to obey God before government, but he has not promised us exemption from the earthly consequences of that action. Now look, as I'm talking, probably in your mind you've had a, yeah, but, or but what about, there's a lot of that in this. I'm just trying to speak to the very clearest things, and I wanna close with the very clearest thing. The fifth way to view ourselves as the people of God living in the land of Caesar is this. The clearest thing about how a Christian should live under Caesar is that we should conduct ourselves in a way that is consistent with the character of Christ. I'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 20, five. First Peter chapter two, verse 11 through 25. Peter's encouragement is this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says, as people who are living in nations that are not the way they want them to be, my urge to you, is to not give in to the passions of the flesh. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who do not believe and live like we live, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Listen to verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Y'all, when I open social media, I see a bunch of ignorance. Ignorance. I see a bunch of people that are, not you, who are my friends on Facebook. I see a bunch of people who are confused. And it, I'm just like, this is so stupid. This is so misguided. This is so confused. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm I'm a good arguer. How can I argue with them? How can I refute them? I've been to a lot of Bible school. I I can come up with great things. I've studied a lot of this. And God says that this is the will of God by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of god listen to that don't pretend like you really care about what is right but all you really care about is the freedom to live for yourself but be a servant of god honor everyone Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He makes distinctions. We should honor everybody. We should specifically love the brotherhood, the fellow believers in Christ, and we fear God and we honor the emperor. That's a different kind of honor to those who are ruling over us. Servants, be subject to your masters. He's even talking to people who aren't free. With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, if you suffer because of your obedience to Christ, because of what's going on around you, you are receiving a gracious thing. He says in verse 20, for what credit credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You deserve it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What does God expect of me? He expects you to remember Christ. You see, here's where it begins. You and I deserve nothing on this earth. And God has given us heaven. And if that doesn't shape how we view our role in this world primarily, then we are misguided. We must remember first and foremost that Christ who did nothing wrong, who deserved to be king, suffered so that we might be a part of his kingdom. So I pray that that's what people see in you, and I pray that as believers that we're marked primarily by that and not by our divisions. I'll take, I would like you to notice this. Matthew, who collected the Roman tax and was corrupt, as many tax collectors likely, making some for himself, and Simon the zealot who waged war, the zealots waged war, against the government or two of the 12 who followed Jesus together. May the gospel of Jesus Christ bring a unity that transcends backgrounds, ideologies, and views for our lives. I wanna lead us in a time of response now and remember that the thing we should have most in common is God. Bow your head and pray with me. Father, I pray that we would remember the king and we would remember what the king's earth on life looked like for the kingdom. And Lord, if there's somebody in here who has an unhealthy view of their citizenship, of political issues. Every time they turn on CNN or turn on Fox News or open their social media, they just get full of anger and passion and obsession. Doesn't mean we're not right about what's right and truth isn't truth, but it means we realize you are the greatest truth. And we're only yours by the mercy of God. And so may we view people in that mercy. And may we realize that some things are out of our control, but what is in our control is whether or not we live in righteousness daily. God, help us not to be obsessed by things that happen in Washington and and in Tallahassee and other places that we can never do anything about while we neglect our marriage and we neglect our neighbors and we neglect our children and we neglect the community that God has placed us in to be the church of God. God, may we just be found faithful. So just melt our hearts to that. And God, if we've never come to the place where we realize you are the king and all this is because we want our way, we want our will, Lord, but we realize that you are the king and you deserve all things and you've given us all breath and everything we have is yours, I just pray that we would bow at your feet and say, I want life in you. And we would die to ourselves. We would have a funeral for ourselves, And Jesus, you would raise us up in the spirit of God to live for you and experience the joy that comes from Christ, our king. God, empower your church to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.